Well, we live in a country that tends, I think, now uh, to label fewer and fewer things as evil, much less sinful. And yet, Scripture speaks of evil all the time, and in fact, speaks of the evil one. And certainly, our society, if uh, it ever did believe in an actual Satan, has long since tossed that side away. Well, uh, today we see that Satan is real, that he is uh, all too real, and that he, in fact, is a tempter. And we'll see him tempt Christ as the first thing that Christ uh, encounters in his ministry. We are continuing going through the Gospel of Luke. And uh, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you, as always, to open them up and follow along as I read and keep them open as we work through this passage. Our passage today is Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. If you're going to be using the Bibles in in the seat backs in front of you, underneath, you'll find uh, the passage on page 859. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Well, if you recall last week, we looked at Jesus' genealogy, and we saw that he has the genealogical credentials to be the Messiah. But as I mentioned last week, Luke places the genealogy in a very uh, unique spot. Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy, and Luke places it in between uh, essentially two accounts of Jesus being referred to as the Son of God. At his baptism, his father proclaims him to be the Son of God. You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. And as we see in our text today, Satan comes at him and says, if you are the Son of God. And in between that, 
we have that genealogy that traces Jesus all the way back to God, where Jesus is called the Son of God. And Luke now, what he wants to do in these, ver- in these opening verses here is take us right back to Jesus' baptism. He's taking us back to the Jordan. He says, uh, Jesus, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, remember, at his baptism, the Holy Spirit comes down and anoints him in the, in the bodily form of a dove. And, and Luke says, being full of the Holy Spirit, he returns from the Jordan. He takes us back, back to that baptism where Jesus has been pronounced by his Father to be his beloved Son in whom he is well pleased. And as I mentioned, even though John's baptism was a baptism for repentance of sins, Jesus didn't need to be baptized for that. He had no sin. For the first 30 years of his life, he had perfectly obeyed his Father. For the first 30 years of his life, he had perfectly loved his Father with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so when he showed up in Matthew's account of the baptism, John the Baptist looks at him and says, wait, you need to baptize me. You're coming to me for baptism? I'm a sinner. And Jesus, again, replies, no, but you must baptize me to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus, in, in heading down, was not identifying himself as a sinner, but he was identifying himself with sinners. He was essentially, at that moment, saying, I have come here for sinners. And we'll see this the rest of the time in Luke's gospel. Jesus had no sin. He was the beloved Son of God, and His heavenly Father had said as much. He had made it clear at the baptism. Now, what does Luke say? Well, he is led, full of the Holy Spirit, led from the Jordan, from that moment when he's baptized, into the wilderness. He is led by the Holy Spirit. The, the word there, led, it, it means literally kind of like pulled along. This is not some vague kind of wandering, like Jesus is just trying to figure out where to go next. The Holy Spirit pulls him along into the wilderness. Mark's gospel gives maybe an even more emphatic word for it. He says the Holy Spirit forces him or drove him. Literally, the word means thrust him forcibly into the wilderness. Jesus, though, here is what, what's being said is he's full of the Holy Spirit, He's been anointed for ministry, and the very first place that the Spirit drives him is into the wilderness of Judea. Now, if you've ever been to Israel, uh, some of you may have seen this area, what it looks like. I I saw it. I was there. And this is the last place you would want to go, especially coming from the Jordan, which is, if you've been to the Jordan, you, you, you realize it's a relatively lush place. You, you have water flowing. It's, it's nice. Uh, and then to be driven into basically a place that would mean almost certain death if you're out there for too long, that, that's where he is driven. Now, why would the Holy Spirit lead him? Why would the Holy Spirit drive him, the beloved Son of God, there? Have you ever asked yourself that question? You as a Christian, I'm pretty sure you have. I know I have many. I asked that question this morning. When Donna 
sent me a text and said, oh, by the way, our printer is down in the office. That, I, I, I have a routine every Sunday morning. I get up early, go over my sermon again, come here, go in that office, print my sermon, and go over it again. And Donna said, I don't know what's going on. It's not printing. Well, I didn't need that anxiety this morning to try to figure out, and what am I going to do? I have all kinds of pages to print. Why, Lord? Why, why, why is it always on Sunday morning? Always, you ever notice that? Like, if you want to take the kids out to get donuts on Saturday morning, it's smooth sailing. You want to get them out the door to come to worship, and there's something that goes wrong. Always. We know that nothing happens to us by accident. We know that God is providentially leading us. God leads us along. We know he, he's ordering all the events in our lives by his sovereign power and his wisdom. And sometimes we wonder why in the world God would lead us to a particularly tough situation. Well, we have to remember that God always has a reason. Even if we don't see it, even if we never know what the reason is, he knows. And we see here that there is a reason for Jesus to be led there. The Holy Spirit led him there, and he led him there first for a very important purpose, and that was to be tempted by the devil. Notice, it's important to note, especially since it is the Spirit leading Jesus here, that it is Satan doing the tempting, not God. The Bible is very clear about that. God leads us to times of testing. God tests our faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. James is clear about this. Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various times, various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's what God is trying to produce in us. He's trying to grow us in our faith. Blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. But then James goes on and says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. So Luke's being very clear here to be tempted by the devil. It is Satan who is doing the tempting. Now still, we ask ourselves, okay, it's Satan doing the tempting, but it's still the Spirit leading him to that. Why? Why would the Spirit lead Jesus to go through all of this right at the start of his ministry? Again, because Jesus is the Son of God. That is what Luke has been stressing this whole time from the first verse, basically, of his gospel. Again and again and again, he's, he's stressing that Jesus is the Son of God. And as we saw last Sunday in the genealogy, he's not only the Son of God, but he is the second Adam. He is the Son of God and the second Adam. Now, question. Who in the Bible is referred to as the Son of God besides Jesus. Well, Adam is referred to as the Son of God, as we saw last week in the genealogy, and Israel is referred to as the Son of God. 
Exodus 4. You shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Jesus is the second Adam, and if you will, Jesus is the second Israel. Jesus is heading to this temptation to be the faithful son that Adam failed to be, and he's headed into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan to be the faithful son that Israel failed to be. Who is it in the whole scripture that is directly tempted by Satan? Adam and Eve and Jesus. Where is Israel put to the test? In the wilderness. Israel is put to the test in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 8, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Do you see how the purpose is right here at the start is for Jesus to be the faithful son that Adam and Israel failed to be? He is being tested in the wilderness for 40 days, just as Israel was tested in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus is being directly tempted by Satan, not in the Garden of Eden, surrounded by abundant food, and not even in the wilderness being fed by manna from heaven, but in the wilderness starving to death. The text says Jesus ate nothing during those days. How long have you gone without food? What's the longest you've gone? Obviously not asking you to answer, you know, verbally, audibly. But, I mean, think about it. I, I'm hungry when I wake up in the morning. When I've fasted for some hours in the course of sleep, when I get up, I want food. Sometimes I've done a a couple day fast to pray. Uh, a couple of times I've done this crazy like lemonade diet where you essentially just drink kind of this concoction of lemonade for a certain number of days. And, you know, I set a goal for like a month and it didn't go anywhere near that far because uh, I was famished and withering away to nothing. Jesus is not eating anything for 40 days. And can you imagine that? A medical website says, in general terms, the human body can go two to three days without water and 30 to 40 days without food of any kind. So, so when it says here, he ate nothing for 40 days, and at the end of 40 days, he was hungry. And sometimes scripture, I think, just makes these kind of crazy understatements. Uh, I mean, Jesus is starving to death. If anyone is hungry, it's him. This shows, by the way, that he is fully human, that the incarnation actually happened. Obviously, in his divine nature, he doesn't get hungry. This is his human nature. Now, notice, though, why he isn't eating. 
Uh, it's not, I mean, yeah, granted, there's, there's really no food in, in that area. Uh, so in one sense, you could say, well, it's just because he, he didn't, couldn't find food. But Matthew, though Luke doesn't say it, Matthew is more explicit. He says Jesus fasted for 40 days. Fasting, that, that word there, it means to basically go without food for a set time for religious purposes. That this wasn't a, a, a health fast or, or something like that. He was fasting for religious purposes, the, 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 the Greek lexicon says. One scholar says this, Jesus fasted these 40 days in order to arm himself against the devil's temptations. Have you ever considered that? I, I don't know how many, I, I know that rarely ever crosses my mind. There have been a few times in my life when I have fasted uh, and prayed during that time for a specific thing or for a purpose. Here we have Jesus, who is, has no sin nature. Jesus is born solely of the Spirit. Jesus does not have a sin nature inside that would in any way lead him to want sin from the inside, and yet he finds it to be imperative that he fast in order to withstand this direct temptation and this direct assault from Satan. If he believes it's that important, who are we to ever not think of this? Christian, I would just encourage you, if, if there is some temptation that you're struggling with, if there is some sin that you habitually fall into, why not? Why not fast and pray as Jesus did? Well, Satan comes to him and he says, if you are the son of God, now stop there. Satan knows he is. Scripture's clear. All of the demons know who he is. Sa Satan is not wondering. This is not a question. It's not like Satan is going out to this guy and saying, I kind of think he's God's son, but I want to see him do something that only God's son can do, and then I'll know. That's not... Essentially, Satan is saying, you could even word this, since you are the son of God. Satan's not wondering. Now, he says, since you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, notice first that, that this temptation really would never apply to us. There are, I mean, Scripture says Jesus was tempted in all ways, yet without sin. I mean, this always includes ways that only he can be tempted. In order for me to be tempted to do something, I, I first have to think I have somewhat the ability to do it. I don't know about you, but Satan's never tempted me to manipulate the molecules of creation. To, to, to be able to turn stone into bread is something obviously only the incarnate Son can do. But the question here is, would the mere act of making bread out of stone be sinful? No. No. It, it wouldn't be sinful. I mean, in fact, Jesus is going to do that very thing. I mean, in, in, in isolation, if you're just saying in a vacuum, is turning stone into bread sinful? Well, no, not for Jesus, because 
a little later on, you'll see, if you've read through the Gospels before, that he essentially does the same thing to feed 5,000 people. He makes food out of really nothing. He has the power to do that as the Son of God incarnate. And if you think about him as the Son of God in his pre-incarnate state, he did it for Israel when Israel was wandering in the wilderness. Jesus is the one that fed them the manna in the wilderness. He made them food out of nothing. Israel didn't starve while wandering for 40 years because Jesus gave them the food. Deuteronomy 8, he humbled you. He let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, which your fathers didn't know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Just think of the temptation it would have been. If you're starving to death and you can turn a stone into bread and in the wilderness there are stones all over the place, you could have made yourself a banquet out there. The temptation, we have to understand, was strong. He could have saved himself. He could have provided his own manna. Israel couldn't. They had to be given the manna that they didn't know, that they didn't work for, but Jesus could. He was God. He could have fed himself, but, but that wasn't his mission. Because when he goes back to Deuteronomy 8 and quotes from there, notice that's where, what he quotes to Satan. Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus is, I think, essentially pointing back to exactly what happened to Israel. Israel was being tested. And what was Israel being tested? They were being tested to know what was in their heart. Jesus is being tested so that we can know what was in his heart. And Jesus answers by going to Deuteronomy 8. It is written. Satan was Yes, trying to get Jesus to turn stone into bread, but because that wasn't a sin in and of itself, I think the sin was Jesus or Satan was trying to get Jesus to doubt God's word. Again, go back to the baptism. What has Jesus just heard? He's just heard, You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. He's just heard that, and now he's out here starving. And I think Satan is saying to him, since you are the Son of God, since you are the beloved Son, since God the Father is well pleased by you, why are you starving like this? You shouldn't be in this position. Why are you struggling out here in the wilderness? Did God really say, you are my beloved Son? Isn't that what what Satan did with Eve? Did God really say? That, that's what Satan wants us to do. We know what God says about us. Jesus knew what God the Father said about him, and then Satan comes along and points at our predicament and says, did God really say? Eve, if, if God loves you so much, why did he say you couldn't eat from any tree in the garden? 
Well, no, no, he only said we, we couldn't eat from one. Yeah, that's because he doesn't want you to be like him. Jesus, did God really say, this is my beloved son? R.C. Sproul points to this. He says, what is under attack here is not really the identity of Jesus so much as it is the trustworthiness of the word of God. That's what Satan loves to do to us. It's what he wants to do to us all the time. He is the accuser. He loves to come to us, Christian, and say, are you really the beloved son and daughter of God? Didn't God say that, that you were the lost sheep, that, that he left the, the 99 to go find? Didn't he say that, that, that you have an eternal future, that, that he went to prepare a place for you in his father's mansion? I mean, if that's the case, what, what in the world are you doing in this situation? Is that true? I thought God loved you. Notice how Jesus answers Satan. As the Son of God incarnate, something that we aren't, Jesus could have said anything and it would have been the Word of God. In fact, Jesus says many things that are not direct quotations from the Old Testament that he will say later, we'll see many of them in Luke's Gospel, that are the Word of God. Whatever he says is the infallible Word of God. So why then does he go back to Scripture? I mean, Scripture doesn't tell us why. But I, I wonder if it's to give us an example of what we can do. You see, we, we can't speak God's Word afresh. And those who try to prophesy today are always false prophets. We must go back to the infallible Word of God. When we are tempted, Christian, when we are tempted to sin, or when we are tempted by Satan to believe a lie about God, when Satan comes to us and essentially says, use your reason and use your faculties, use your eyes, look around. Isn't God mistreating you? We ought not be like Eve. And basically put God's word on the scale and Satan's word on the scale and try to weigh it out with our own reason because we'll fall. We must instead do what Jesus did. Go back to the word of God and say, Satan, it is written. You're a liar. It's what Luther did. And so Jesus succeeds in the first temptation. But Satan wasn't finished yet. Verses 5 and 7, the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. You know, a question you have to ask yourself this morning is who or what do you worship? Because scripture doesn't say, you know, it doesn't wonder if you will worship it. It wonders what you will, you will worship. I mean, Scripture's clear. We are beings that are designed to worship. Millions of people are going to be worshiping this afternoon. NFL football players. And those who paid thousands and thousands of dollars to be there are especially 
going to be worshiping these idols of theirs. All throughout the Bible, we find that everyone save Jesus at some point turns from worshiping God to worshiping some idol, and that's true for us as well. If football isn't your idol, ask yourself what is. Now, up until this point in time, when Satan is is attempting Jesus, Jesus had only ever perfectly worshipped his Father. In his human nature, Jesus said, I have come here to do the Father's will and to honor him and him alone. Jesus didn't care what anyone else tried to talk him into doing. It didn't matter. All that mattered to him was to do his Father's will and to please him and to put him above everything else. And that's all Jesus ever did perfectly. And now Satan is going to challenge that. Satan takes Jesus, it says in Matthew, to a very high mountain. Luke doesn't say that. He just says he he took him up. So we know they're standing on a a very high mountain, and, and Satan shows him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. Now, did Satan take Jesus to a high mountain and then have him look down on all of the kingdoms that existed then? You know, did he say, look at this village over here and and this over here, and way in the distance you can see a little bit of Egypt or whatever? All of this will be yours? Maybe. Maybe that's why he took him up on a mountain. But see, I, I doubt that because Scripture says that he showed him all the kingdoms in a moment of time. So it seems to me that there was some supernatural thing going on here, that, that somehow Satan gave Jesus a vision of all the kingdoms in the history of the world. He showed Jesus what could be his. Now, if the first temptation appealed to Jesus' immediate needs, like hunger, This second temptation seems to appeal to a lust for what the world offers. Satan says, to you I'll give all of this, all the authority, all the glory. That's exactly what Satan tries to do with us, isn't it? Satan throws the world at us. So often most of us don't have anywhere near all the power and glory and money and everything that the world can offer. If that's you sitting in this room, if you have all the power and money and glory that the world can offer, then I don't know why you're in this room. (laughs) You should be somewhere else in a villa somewhere. Most of us don't have anywhere near what the world offers, money and power and sex and degrees and fame, but Satan offers it to us if we'll just do it his way. If we'll just follow him, it will all be ours. Satan says, all this has been delivered to me. And Satan is called in Scripture the prince of the power of the air. He is called by Jesus the ruler of this world. He is called by Paul the God of this world. In one sense, Satan is correct that the world is his. But notice here, I think the way he speaks of himself, I think he twists things slightly because although Satan is the ruler of this world, he is ruled by God. Satan is still a creature. Martin Luther said, Satan is God's devil. But the way Satan is talking, he's almost speaking as though he's God. All of this is mine and I can give it to whoever I will. 
Satan then says, if you, if you worship me, all of this will be yours. And that's, I think, what Satan does with us. He tempts us with the world essentially by making us believe that he is God. And when we are diverted from the true God and we start going Satan's way, we find out eventually that all of his promises are empty because he's the father of lies. We find out that doing it Satan's way seems maybe enticing for a while, but in the end it leads to destruction. That's what Satan wants. He's like the ultimate multi-level marketing pyramid scam seller makes it seem like you're going to end up the richest guy in the world and then after you jump and dive right into this and give it your all you end up with nothing satan says worship me the greek word the verb here literally means prostrate yourself put your face to the ground in an act of allegiance just picture that. I mean, has there ever been a more tense moment in the history of the world than at that moment? When Satan, who is not bound by the fragility of human flesh, when Satan, who is in his angelic form far more powerful and glorious than a human, is speaking to the Son of God incarnate, who in his weakness has taken on human flesh and is now starving, skin and bones, says, fall down and put your face to the ground before me. One New Testament scholar said Satan would willingly and happily give up his entire worldly kingdom with all of its power and glory. The wor he would give up the world's worship of him if he could achieve his most frenzied, desired, diabolical goal, God's worship of him. That's what Satan wants. He wants God to fall at his feet and worship him. Satan already got Adam to fall. He got Israel to fall. Could he make it three for three? Could he get God himself to prostrate before him? How does Jesus respond? Once again, Jesus goes to Scripture. This time, he quotes from Deuteronomy 6, which we heard earlier in the service. And again, in that chapter, the, the phrase, the Lord your God. If you somehow zoned out during that Deuteronomy chapter 6, go home today and read it, because you'll see the phrase, the Lord your God. Yahweh, your God, is repeated 14 times in that chapter. God is impressing it upon Israel that I am your God. I, Yahweh, am your God. Don't go after other gods. He says, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and all your might. He says, when I lead you into this land that I'm graciously giving you. Take, take care lest you forget me. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him shall you serve. And by his name you shall swear. God provided everything for them. They didn't deserve it. He even told them that before they entered the land. You're no better than the people that I'm displacing for you. 
And yet I loved you. I put my mark on you. I brought you out of slavery. I've given you everything. I've given you food. I'm going to give you houses. I'm going to give you lush gardens. Just don't forget me. And that's what he says to us. I, you, Christian, did not deserve my grace. You're no better than anyone out in the world who runs away from me and spurns me. But I chose you. I put my love upon you. I rescued you from slavery to sin. I've given you everything you have, and I've given you a future with me. Just don't forget me. What did Israel do? In the promised land, they run after other gods. We all run after other gods, don't we, Christian? Thank God for Jesus' faithfulness. Jesus stayed strong, but Satan wasn't finished yet. He had one more temptation to go. Verses 9 through 11, notice that for the first time, Satan uses Scripture. Satan appealed to Christ's basic need of hunger the first time. Secondly, he appealed to the, what the world has to offer. And, and this time, Satan tries Jesus' own game. He tries to use Scripture and twist it to his own ends. He quotes from Psalm 91, and if you read Psalm 91, which we actually uh, preached from uh, during our summer psalms uh, one summer, you'll see that Psalm 91 is a psalm of trust, that the psalmist is saying, I trust in God. I trust in God to provide for me. I trust in God to protect me. I trust in God to care for me. And if Psalm 91 applies to anyone, it applies to Jesus, because Psalm 91 is ultimately a messianic psalm that points forward to the Messiah, who will trust God perfectly. Psalm 91, speaking as the Messiah, be, because you, or speaking about the Messiah, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. On your hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And for the first 33 years of his life, Jesus was protected divinely. The angels guarded him. How many times was Jesus threatened with death? How many people plotted his death? How many people wanted his death? Next week, we'll see that a mob, an angry mob, tries to throw him off a cliff. And somehow, though the entire sea of people were after him, he walks right through them and escapes. How? Because Psalm 91 applies to him. Even as an infant, Jesus was divinely protected by God against Herod, who tried to have him killed. Again and again and again, Jesus was protected. But notice how Satan is twisting Scripture to make Psalm 91 not about trusting God, but about testing God. So you have to take every Scripture in context. And so, if you say, well, I ultimately trust God to provide for me materially, 
But you take that in the context of all of Scripture, then you know that Proverbs tells you to get out and work hard. The rest of Scripture never says, well, just go lay down and be a sluggard, and that that's trusting God to provide for you. No, that's testing God. Saying I'm going to lay down, I'm not going to go apply for jobs, and I'm not going to get up and work every day is to say, God, I'm just, I want you to drop a basket of money off on my porch every day. I'm trusting you. No, no, that's putting God to the test. <clears throat> Jesus takes this scripture in context. Satan tries to twist it. Jesus, verse 12, answered him, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test from Deuteronomy chapter 6 again. Well, Jesus passes all three tests. He proves himself to be the faithful son that Adam and Israel failed to be. And having defeated Satan, Scripture says Satan left him. But Scripture includes this in verse 13, that he departed from him until an opportune time. And, and you read that and you say, well, what in the world, what other time could there be? What more opportune time could there be than this? When else would Jesus be more alone? When else would Jesus seem to be more forgotten by his Father than starving to death in the wilderness? Well, three years after this temptation, as Jesus hung on the cross, as he hung there, he would hear the refrain again. As those who mocked him said, if you are the son of God, prove it by coming down from the cross. What are you doing there, Jesus? I thought you were the beloved son of God. Haven't you been ministering in his name for three years? Haven't you healed in his name? Haven't you preached the gospel in his name? Why are you all alone? Why are you hanging there in agony? Why are you being mocked? If you are the son of God, come down. You've saved others. Save yourself. But that brings us all the way back to Genesis 3.15, the first gospel. Because what did God say? What was the curse that God brought on Satan in the garden after the first Adam fell? He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. It's so interesting to me that Satan pulls Psalm 91, that, that one verse, out of context. He says to Jesus, throw yourself down because after all, the angels will bear you up. He didn't quote the next verse in Psalm 91. The next verse in Psalm 91 says, about the Messiah, you will tread on the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Satan ripped Psalm 91.11 out of context because he knew what the rest of it said. He knew from that first day in the garden after the fall. He knew that the Messiah was destined to trample him underfoot. He knew that the Messiah was destined to crush his head. And where does Jesus crush his head? The day that his heel is bruised. He crushes his head on the cross. It was Jesus' mission to go to the cross. That was why Satan attempted to stop him from the get-go. 
That was why Satan tried to have him killed as an infant by Herod. That was why Satan tried to have him thrown off the cliff. That was why Satan tried to have him stoned for blasphemy by the Sanhedrin. Again and again and again, Satan tried to interfere to keep him from going to the cross. When he offered him all the kingdoms of the world, he was offering him the kingdom without the cross. You don't need to go through that, Jesus. Just bow the knee to me, and it will all be yours. And when none of those worked, he tempted him to come down from the cross. If there was ever a more opportune time to tempt Jesus to abandon his mission, if there was ever a more opportune time than when Jesus was starving to death and being tested by the Father, it was when he was hanging on the cross, forsaken by the Father and bearing the wrath of the Father. Jesus had the divine protection of Psalm 91. He even said, if I wanted to, I could call down 12 legions of angels to rescue me now. But he said, if I did that, how would the scripture be fulfilled? How would I have my heel bruised if I abandoned my mission? See, Jesus went all the way to the cross because it was only there that the decisive and final blow was dealt to Satan. Yes, Jesus turned him away in the, in the wilderness, but Colossians 2 says, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them, nailing it to the cross. And the good news is that everything that Satan offered to give Jesus, he got anyway, and more. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father. He has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And he has been given the name that is above every name. And scripture promises us that one day it will be Satan who will be prostrate before him. By gaining the kingdom through the cross, Christian, he saved you and me, whose very sins put him there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this wonderful text. Thank you so much, Lord, for telling us and revealing to us that your Son immediately bound the strong man, that Satan is defeated that we no longer have to fear him. Lord, give us the strength through your spirit to withstand the temptations to honor the son who died for us. It's in his name we pray, amen.